Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Citizen Chef is a production of iHeartRadio. So, you know, it, it sounds like seeds can tell almost the entire human story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Tom Colicchio, and you're listening to Citizen Chef. Yeah, so my, my interest in seeds kind of happened around five or six years ago. I actually started gardening. And um, uh, obvi- obviously, oh, you, you, awesome. you go from gardening. I have like uh, like twenty or so raised beds, five by seven raised beds, and kind of fell down that rabbit hole and really got into it. And um, started looking at, at seed catalogs. I used to joke around and I started looking at seed catalogs the way I looked at Playboy when I was fifteen. Um, it, it was just fascinating <laughs> um, the the amount of breeds and then the stories behind all these seeds and and um, this. Yeah, we are talking about seeds. Seed, yeah, we're talking about seeds. Seed shed. Um, what does Seed Shed do? So I'm Ken Green. I run a nonprofit called Seed Shed, and I'm the founder and creative director of a seed company called Hudson Valley Seed Company. Seed Shed focuses on seed justice uh, issues, and so we work with communities um, that are facing uh, challenges around their seed, and we also do seed literacy education. Um, and work to uh, improve uh, seed culture. Um, that is people's understanding of seeds and the role of seeds in their lives. So let's start there. I, mean, I guess people don't have a, a deep understanding of seed. Um, they don't understand, right. I guess, what it means to them. And so someone, someone listening in today would think like, well, why should I care about seeds? Uh, how do I interact with seeds? And what, what would you tell them? Well, you know, seeds are this invisible part of our lives that... Um, we don't even think about day to day, but are affecting us day to day. They're an essential and yet invisible part of our everyday lives. Uh, and when we think about some of the bigger issues that we're facing globally, seeds many times are at the root of that, whether that's about how seeds are grown, how seeds are shared, uh, how seeds are commodified. Um, and so that's part of my work is how do we pull back that curtain and get people to understand um, where they intersect with seeds? You know, if people understood that four companies control about 60% of, of, of the seed, um, that would probably be alarming. And, and if, if they are alarmed by that, why should they be alarmed by that? Well, it, yeah, it's a really interesting statistic. So there's a, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen the graphic that Phil Howard from MSU created. 
That's called consolidation of seed resources. And so it shows how over time there's been a consolidation in the industry um, by fewer and fewer corporations controlling more and more of the planet's uh, commercial seed resources. So right now we have three multinational corporations um, really in control of the bulk of seed resources on the planet. Um, and they're all pharmaceutical and biotech corporations. Oh, okay. So that's concerning because, you know, they're not nutrition focused or food access focused um, or thinking about, you know, regional ad adaptation or climate change or all of these issues that we're facing that are connected to seeds and our ability as communities to feed ourselves. They're focused on a very specific type of profit, which is either bundling um, seeds and seed breeding with pharmaceutical delivery or bundling seeds and seed breeding with uh, chemical inputs. Right. Um, so, you know, for many of us, we think that's not the right kind of uh, folks to be controlling seeds and seed access and food and food access. Right. And, and we're talking about the, the seeds that we're talking about is corn, soy, uh, what else? I mean, we're not talking about, you know, someone growing carrots in their garden. Yeah, but that's the thing. So that that graphic, the consolidation of seed resources graphic, you know, a lot of people look that and look at that and feel really alarmed. And there are reasons to feel really alarmed. But that graphic doesn't show all of the amazing, inspiring, good work that's happening within communities and small regional seed companies and seed nonprofits and seed advocacy organizations and community seed initiatives. There's this whole entire landscape of seed happening. Um, which recognized that we have this loss of genetic diversity and that there's something we can actually do about it uh, by working together. And so more and more, there's gardeners who are growing things that are not attached to that map, um, but it's still a very small percentage compared to the global seed right. industry. I, guess, I, I think this was a, a quote attributed to you that good food comes from good seeds. Can, can, you, can you explain that? What is a good seed? Wow. I mean, that's a loaded question. <laughs> and you're, you know, you're going to get different answers from different folks. For me, when I think about good seed, you have to think about all the interactions and interconnections of that seed. So where did that seed come from? Who grew it? How was it grown? How was it shared? Um, who gets to tell that seed story? Is, is it being told by the community um, that represents the origins of that seed, or was that seed appropriated in some way at a certain time or stolen at a certain time, uh, and we're only hearing part of the story. So to me, a good seed is where you know, you know the story, you have a respect and understanding of the origins of that variety, um, and that the, the system that that, part, that seed is part of. And what I mean by that is you know, how, who grew it, how it was grown, and how it was shared that you feel like all of the people involved in that chain of sharing that seed hand to hand to hand to hand until it gets to your garden, that you feel good about all of those practices um, and the values of those folks match your values. And it doesn't always line up that well. You know, you do the best you can, but you know, even when we're looking at just, you know, one piece of this, say organic, you know, that you want to have an organic garden and, you know, treating the earth a certain way. Uh, through using organic practices as, as part of your values of, of how you want to garden. It, why aren't you buying certified organic seed 
And people will say, well, you know, I'm only worried about organic because, you know, for things I'm putting in my body, things I'm eating. But of course, organic is really a practice. So if you're buying seeds that aren't certified organic or used, you know, grown using organic practices, then you're actually supporting someone treating the earth in a way that isn't aligned with your values. But we can look at race, we can look at gender, we can look at access, we can look at food justice, uh, we can look at social justice, we can look at environmental justice, we can look at all of these different ways where that act of putting the seed into the soil and growing it involved many, many, many people, not just for that particular seed, but you know, going back in history and do all those values line up for you. And it's hard to know sometimes. There's not a lot of transparency in the commercial seed industry. We'll be back with more Citizen Chef. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Take me through one of those stories. I mean, is, is there a particular seed, a particular breeder uh, that you want to highlight? You know, is, is there a seed in your catalog in, 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 from Hudson Valley Seed Company that you can tell that story? I'd I just love, love to hear a, a, a story about one particular seed, one that excites you. Um, you know, get, get me, sell, sell me that seed. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there's so many different stories and different kinds of stories. One that I've been sharing more is about autophile flint corn. Okay. So it's a, I mean, the corn is just gorgeous. The ears have this golden, rich, deep golden glow to, glow to them. It's not just that sort of, you think of like a yellow corn, sort of that pale. It's, there's, you can tell there's something special about it. And it makes the most amazing polenta. Like I have never had better Got polenta it. than is made from autophile. And we carry that, we being the Hudson Valley Seed Company, we carry that in our catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have been telling the story of that seed as it was passed to us, that it's an Italian heirloom variety that was developed in Italy you know, specifically for polenta. Uh, it was brought over here and given to someone who gave it to someone else who I happen to know the farmer and he gave it to us. And we've been doing our own selections to make sure it stays adapted to the Northeast. And we also have our own particular feelings about what the color should be, and what the size should be, and what the texture should be when it's, when it's ground. So we've been telling that story of this Italian heirloom. But then in my work with the nonprofit, the story totally changed. And so... I was having a gathering. We work with the Aquasase Mohawk community in northern New York. 
an indigenous community up near Canada. Yes, exactly. So we work yeah. with them, supporting them and growing some of their uh, indigenous varieties that are uh, disappearing. And they came down for an event and we were cleaning seed together and I wanted to give them a gift while they were here. And I gave them some ears of the autophile and I'm telling them the story. And my friend Rowan White, who's an uh, indigenous seed keeper who runs the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network was there. And she looked at it and she said, this is our corn. <laughs> this is eight row flint corn. This is the corn of my people. And so, you know, these stories that are passed to us, you know, what part of that story are we telling and retelling? We can go further back with these stories and really think, oh yes, of course, corn came from here. European uh, colonists took many of those varieties back to Europe where they continued to change and be adapted and be selected. And then they came back uh, with immigrants um, from those European communities. But there's this longer story here of sharing seeds um, between cultures. And so now, you know, we had to go back and say, okay, we want to tell the full story of this variety and not just the latest story that was passed to us. Right. Does this particular variety express itself differently, say, in Italy or in, in, in New York? Uh, sorry, I couldn't. Is there a regionality to is, is there it, does, this, does this particular seed express itself differently, say, in Italy versus uh, you know New York State? Uh, is there a regionality to, even though it's the same seed and the same variety, does, does it... Does it uh, express itself differently in different regions. Uh, it does better or worse just, in different regions. That, yeah. 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 All varieties have yeah. some amount of, of ability to be resilient and adapt to different areas. Um, but there's a varying degree. Corn happens to be very widely adaptable. Um, but like mm -hmm. I said, when we got the corn um, and started growing it, we saw things that we thought we could improve. Um, by doing selections in the field so that it would be more regionally adapted. All right. So when the average person hears, you know, heirloom, the word heirloom, whether it's tomato or other heirlooms, what 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 does that mean? What, what should they know about that word vis-a-vis -a, -vis a, a particular uh, variety of uh, tomato or, or, you know, pea or something like that? Yeah, heirloom. I think there's a, a lot of misconception around that word. It's, yeah, and my my. It's almost used as a marketing word now. Yes. It doesn't seem to mean anything. Yeah, it's changed yeah. so much over time. And my feelings about the value of the word have changed. When I first got involved mm -hmm. in seeds, like I would say heirloom seed and people would be like, what does that mean? They had never heard something, a plant called an heirloom before. Um, and when I first started using the term, what I really was trying to communicate was that there's more value to a seed than just its commodity value of, you know, what, what am I going to harvest? How much am I going to harvest from this plant? And just like when we pass down objects in a family from generation to generation, and that object may have a lot of cultural or sentimental or nostalgic uh, and family history value to it, but not actually be valuable like if you tried to sell it on eBay kind of thing. Um, right, right. It's a way of saying seeds are also passed down generation to generation, hand to hand that way. 
and that there's more value than just what is going to grow. It comes with all of this history and all of these stories. So, you know, it was a, a like a, a value, but it's really changed over time um, how people are using it. And, um, and also part of it for me was feeling that all of these stories, and this is related to the autophile, many of the stories that were being told about heirlooms were specifically uh, European uh, stories. Uh, mm -hmm. And many of the indigenous stories um, or diasporic stories of these seeds were not being told um, because they didn't fit into people's idea of this sort of romantic heirloom. Um, right. And so I, I don't use the term as much. The other limitation of it is people started getting confused. You know, some people think heirloom means organic, which it, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the growing practices. Um, some people just think of heirloom as like good. Um, and not all heirlooms are, are amazing. Uh, so, right. Heirloom better. <laughs> yeah. And some are way better than anything else you can get. So, it's, there's a limitation to it. And I also, people started using it almost as a way of freezing things in time of saying like, here's the history of this oh, variety. Okay. Let's preserve it. Um, like, right. Like, well, what, what, it actually, what it actually preserves, it preserves diversity. I mean, if we only grew one tomato, well, number one, it'd be boring as hell. But number two, if, if there was something that was, that was a particular pest or a bacteria that was affecting that one particular tomato, we can lose right. our, our tomato. Yeah. I mean, I, I, get, I can be simplifying things, obviously, mm -hmm. but, but I mean, how important is that diversity in, in, in seeds? Yeah. I mean, heirloom really, that term, once it caught on, really did help people think about genetic diversity and the importance of having lots and lots of different varieties with different tastes and different ad ad adaptations and different colors and different histories it really helped um, spur this whole movement around diversity. But we want to continue to increase that diversity, not just like, you know, oh, this is all we have left, just like freeze everything in time. There's so much work being done to increase diversity, to create new varieties. Um, mm -hmm. And there's very ethical and responsible ways to do that. And there's unethical and irresponsible ways to do that. Um, and so... You know, I like thinking about the heirlooms of tomorrow. What varieties okay. are we creating today that 60 to 100 years from now, someone will be like, this is an heirloom variety that's worth hanging on to um, and tell the, tell the story of that. Right. That, the, honey nut, the honey nut squash comes to mind. Which is kind of a, a, a new type squash. Yeah. If it is. I mean, do I have my... Do I have my, my do I have that right? It's, it was a new a new breed of squash that was produced by uh, was it Michael Mazarek? Yeah, so that's a for row seven. Yeah, yeah, that's a really that's a story I've been working on for a little while now. Um, and again, like the autophile, people are telling you know the latest slice, most recent slice of that story. Um, you know, it's being popularized by sort of the use of celebrity and. A, a specific sure. breeder at Cornell. Just to just give a little background, somebody being Dan Barber, a chef uh, who right. is, uh, is considered you know, yeah. one of the 
best restaurants in the world. And so this is uh, sort of his mission was to look at the way uh, plant breeders were, were breeding for traits that weren't necessarily making food delicious, but were used for other reasons. And so that's that's uh, just wanted to get a little background on that. Right. Um, when you talk about ethics, ethics in in, in uh, creating new uh, hybrids, and what what are the ethics behind that, or where should they be? What are your ethics? Well, I mean, the honey nut is a good example of sort of thinking about a certain part of ethics. Um, which is, you know, who gets credit, who gets to take credit mm-hmm. <laughs> and looking at Honey Nut, you know, very close, you know, not very far behind Michael Mazurek's breeder at Cornell is Molly John, who started that whole breeding project, which was actually a participatory project um, that involved a lot of people, okay. you know, creating that variety. And then if we look behind that, we actually see that there's breeding lines from indigenous communities, from Turkey, uh, from the Sephardic people. Um, you know, there's all these other stories that are not being told. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when we look at it and the most recent story being told is, um, you know, uh, from white men. Um, when right. there's women and people of color and indigenous communities that are all part of that story, and why isn't that being told? Um, but in terms of hybrids, a lot of people want to set up this, you know, open pollinated is good and hybrid is bad. Open pollinated being a variety that if you know what you're doing as a seed saver, you can grow it, you can save seeds, you can plant them again, and it will grow true to type. It'll grow the same plant, the same right. fruit, the same taste, the same days to maturity, all of that. Whereas a hybrid is something that was created using you know, very p- specifically bred parent lines that are then crossed to create a first generation offspring, which has the specific traits that the breeder was looking for. Uh, and if you save seeds from that, it reverts back to random characteristics of the parent plant. Right. right. So you've taken away that kind of ability to have independence. Right. So if you were to if you were to save those seeds as a farmer, as a gardener, save those seeds and plant them the following year, you're not going to get the same right. the same uh, yep. fruit or vegetable. So it creates a dependence right. on the commercial seed source. But that commercial seed source also put a lot of resources into creating something that potentially is going to perform really well for you on your farm. So it's not so bad. So on, on average... I- on a, uh, yeah, on average, how long does a breeder work on that particular you know, breed, that hybrid? Wow, um, just on, on, well, on average. Yeah, it sort of depends on what you know, what part of that process you want to stop the the time clock on. Um, but it can be a few years to a decade or more, um, depending on the plant family and depending on the traits that they're actually working on. Um, and also the processes that they're using, um, whether they're more uh, technologically driven processes um, for creating that, like being able to map out the genetics and um, you know pinpoint um, genes and processes to create traits, or if you're doing it more through selection and growing large populations. And so it really depends you know, on the process and what tools you have access to and what traits you're trying to change or improve. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, 
Exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Sort of the, the concept of, of uh, seed sovereignty. Mm. Um, I think we hear that thrown around a lot. I mean, what, what, is, what does that mean to you? I mean, there's food sovereignty, this idea that, that the people who produce food um, who are toiling in the fields um, should have more control over that, that, uh, yeah. that process. How does seed sovereignty work into that as well? Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of terms that Seed Shed, the nonprofit that I run, have we've been really trying to dig into seed ethics, seed justice, and seed sovereignty. There is no hard and fast definition, I would say right now. What we're looking at and thinking about is what do communities need to grow towards seed sovereignty? With seed sovereignty being a goal of can a, seed, can a community actually manage its own seed source using the cultural values of that community. Um, so that can look different depending on what type of community that we're looking at. But it would require setting up seed systems within that community um, that give that community independence in what varieties are they growing and saving seed from, what are the practices that are being used to grow and save those seeds? And what are the systems that are in place for sharing those seeds within that community? That's fascinating. Um, I, I, I guess uh, before, before we leave, um, I guess the, the last question is, I started out by asking this question, why should people care um, and how, they, how would they interact mm -hmm. with this? And so um, the average person, whether they're shopping in a supermarket or... I mean, think about chefs that are writing menus. What should they be focused on? Should they be focused on the the? Because I started thinking about this a lot recently. Should we start talking about the variety of that carrot or that squash or or that pea as opposed to just well, it's a leak. What what kind of leak is it? And should, should that be on yes. menus? And, and yeah. is that a way to sort of mm -hmm. get the idea across that that it's it's the varieties are are so much more important than the actual you know vegetable itself. Yeah, when I, I so part of Seed Shed, we do seed literacy education. And uh, I've gone to restaurants and done seed literacy ed education in the restaurant with the chefs and the cooks and the servers and everyone who works there to really talk about where do seeds come from? What kind of choice do you really have in terms of varieties? What do those choices limit? in terms of what you're able to serve people mm -hmm. and what is the value of putting the name of the variety on your menu instead of just broccoli. Right. 
because there's so many different kinds of broccoli and there are differences between all of them and there's different histories and stories that come with them. So you're sharing that story just as much as you're sharing the flavor. The story is coming through that. So yeah, my fantasy world, absolutely menus have the names of varieties on them uh, as just a a regular practice uh, for sure. Um, And I think that the other piece to me, the other part of your question to me, you know, why should people care about seeds? And sometimes it's really hard to just talk about it and get people to care. When we do seed saving workshops or when I do seed literacy education and I get people touching seeds and looking at the seeds and having a sensory experience with the seeds, uh, and you know, slowing down and taking that time to be with seeds, something really transformative happens every time. And it's not something I can teach. It's not something I can write about. It's really this relationship, this moment of connecting with the seed as yourself and all the stories that are embodied in you your personal history and your family history and your ancestors with this tiny, what looks like an inanimate object that's actually a living organism sitting in your hand. And when people start to make that connection that this little tiny thing is alive and that we all come from seed savers, we all come from ancestors who had their own varieties based on where they were in the world, that they had that relationship with that plant and saved those seeds and passed them on generation to generation. Doesn't matter who you are, your ancestors saved seeds. And you can start doing that again or make decisions that support other people doing that again. That moment is when people start to care. And so the more we can get people touching seeds, and being able to have that direct relationship, uh, maybe that will lead to menus with <laughs> the names of varieties right, right. on them eventually, um, and a whole lot of other right. wonderful well, uh, transformative things. I'll, I'll try to do my part. So you have all these these art illustrations on your packets, your seed packets. Mm. Can you just describe yeah. one and and why you why you're doing this? So if you go to HudsonValleySeed.com mm-hmm. uh, and you click on the link that says Art Packs. Oh, that's where they that's are. That's what we call Got the seeds it. that feature the art. And then you'll just see them because the rest of the catalog, you know, just has the the images of the variety of photos of the actual Right, variety. right. Yeah. Why don't you describe them? Let me, so let me, let me pick one out because oh, this is great. Uh, <laughs> who does these illustrations? So every one of our packs that, that we call art packs with the Hudson Valley Seed Company, are they're created by a different artist. So we have a call for art and artists apply and then I play matchmaker. And I think that artist totally needs to meet that plant, this plant story or something about this variety has a lot in common with this artist and the way they create art and see the world. I hook them up. Uh, I tell the artist the story of that seed. The artist interprets it through their art. And then that gets put on this special kind of origami folding uh, seed pack that we offer. That's fantastic. So I'm looking at the Anis Hyssop. Um, can, can, you, uh-huh. can you walk us through that illustration? Yeah, so every plant story is different and some have like real deep, you know, stories about history and 
you know, our understanding of the world. And uh, that one, the artist really was thinking about the experience of being near the plant. So instead of thinking about the history of it or where it came from, it was really, she wanted to capture this in the moment mm -hmm. uh, feeling. And so she created this whole garden setting. What's happening in the garden um, when you're sitting near the anise hyssop? And you're, you know, it has this very distinct smell mm -hmm. to it. It attracts hummingbirds. So you get to observe um, the natural world right. um, and invite the natural world into your garden. It's a very relaxing plant uh, in terms of the scent, in terms of the tea that's made from it. Um, and so I think that's what the artist was trying to capture is just that in the moment experience of having that plant in your garden. Yeah, the, the visual, there's some wicker furniture and there's a little tea set up. So it's like tea time and you get to sit back and watch the garden. Yes. You know, my, my anise hyssop, hyssop story, I had a, a whole box filled, filled with uh, anise hyssop and it was the first year I had bees and my honey tastes mm. like anise. It had a very, yeah. very pronounced anise oh. flavor. It was, it was fantastic. And yeah. the following year, I didn't have as much hyssop and I actually moved the bees a little bit because they were in a in a bad uh, anyway, I had to move them. So that, and I, yeah. I haven't been able to capture that again. Um, but anyway, um, Ken, thanks a lot. This is this has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate yeah, it. thanks for chatting. Happy to thanks. Happy to meet you. And uh, I'm always game to talk about seeds <laughs> anytime. You want to talk about seeds some more? I'm your guy. All right, thanks. Okay, <laughs> thanks everyone. Citizen Chef is executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis, produced by Gabby Collins, and as always, a special thanks to A Place at the Table. Citizen Chef is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like this, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. 